0: Thanks, John. This morning's reading uh, is taken from the book of Matthew. will be reading from uh, chapter 6, 1 to 18. Matthew 6, 1 to 18. Beware of practising your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets
1: Great. Thank you, Phil. Good morning, everyone, especially if you're visiting with us for the first time today or joining us online for the first time. It's great to have you with us. As we get underway, I'm sure you've noticed we've had a few audio hiccups this morning, which is a good time to remind you that we're trying to raise funds for an audio system upgrade. <laughs> so please, if, you're, if you are willing to give towards that, uh, mark any gifts just with AV upgrades so we know what it's for, and God willing, we can do something about some of those issues going forward. Right, please do keep a Bible open with you at Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be working through the verses that Phil read for us a moment ago as part of our series in the Sermon on the Mount. There's also an outline in the service outline for you to follow along with us. For now, though, let's pray as we come to God's Word together. Our God and Father... Your word to us is what we need to hear, it's not always what we want to hear. And so we pray now that your spirit would move amongst us to carry your word into our hearts and to transform us to be more like the Lord Jesus, more like members of your kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, as we mentioned earlier, a few of us were at a kids' ministry training day yesterday and it was a fantastic morning, really a great time together. And it was so important to be reminded what a privilege it is to be teaching kids about Jesus, to be training young people to follow Jesus, to know what it means to know him as their Lord and Savior. I'm sure those of us who were there agree, we can't wait for the next one. One of the things we were reminded of, though, is that followers of Jesus do things differently to the world around us. And the way Fiona phrased that for us is that followers of Jesus belong to an upside-down kingdom. I think it's a great way to think about what Jesus has been saying in the Sermon on the Mount so far. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom belongs to them. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. To get into this kingdom, yes, you need a righteousness greater than the most righteous people in the world but it can't be your own righteousness. It's got to be the righteousness of someone who has fulfilled the law for you. It's a kingdom where we don't keep the rules to get in or even to stay in. We keep the rules of the kingdom because we're part of the kingdom. It's who we are. And they're all things, really, that don't make sense to the kingdom of this world. Jesus' kingdom looks upside down. And of course, one day, Jesus' kingdom will be seen for what it is. It'll be seen for what it always has been, right side up. But one thing that's especially true of Jesus' kingdom, Jesus' upside down kingdom, is how we're called to show the things that we're tempted to hide, and to hide the things we're tempted to show. How's that for upside down? Show the things we're tempted to hide, and to hide the things we're tempted to show. It's our human cowardice, wrote John Stott, which made him say, let your light shine before men, and our human vanity, which made him tell us to beware of practicing our piety or our righteousness before men. And learning to hide the things we're tempted to show is exactly what Jesus is driving at in this part of the sermon uh, that we read this morning. Now, it's a very neatly structured part of Jesus' sermon, uh, Jesus starts with an introductory statement in verse 1, which really summarizes everything he's going to be saying in the next 18 verses. So verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before men in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So that's the headline statement, explains everything he's going to be talking about in the next 18 verses. But what he does then is he works out those principles using three specific examples. The examples of giving in verse 1 to 4, prayer in verse 5 to 15, and fasting in verse 16 to 18. And as Phil read it a moment ago, I hope you notice the repeated phrases in each of the sections. Each time it's the same formula. When you do this, don't be like the hypocrites. But when you do, do it like this, then your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Three times. Of course, those points correspond to the headings in your outline if you're following. For this reason, we're not going to go too deep into these particular topics this morning. They could all be sermons on their own, especially the Lord's Prayer. I'm sure many of us have heard sermons or even a whole series of sermons on the Lord's Prayer. But knowing what Jesus is getting at in this section, I think, will help us know how we should approach each of these passages and each of these topics for ourselves. And perhaps we can unpack them a bit more in our small groups during the week. Now, I think it's always helpful when we get a statement like verse 1 in our... It leaves us in no doubt about what we're meant to understand in the passage that follows. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. So if you miss everything else that Jesus says this morning, if you miss everything else that I say, beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. But then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, of course, practicing righteousness, the practicing of righteousness that Jesus talks about here, it's not the same things that we spoke of at the end of chapter 5, the living out the righteousness that he has bought for us in our character and in our attitudes. It's something different. Instead, these are specific activities that we do because we belong to the kingdom. That's why he uses the examples of giving and of prayer and of fasting. These are all typical religious acts which the Bible says God expects of his people. The danger, of course, is that they're done before other people in order to be seen by them. I mean, not so much that they are done before other people, but in order to be seen by other people, to be noticed. That's the danger. And this turns acts of righteousness done by members of the kingdom into acts of vanity done by hypocrites. And the consequence of this, we heard about some consequences this morning in the kids' talk, the consequence is that we lose out on the reward from our Father who is in heaven. Now, we're going to work through the passage using this as our headline statement, as Jesus does. Please have your Bible open so you can follow with us. And this is the first heading on the outline, when you do this. And the first thing to say, really, is that Jesus expects that members of his kingdom will give, that they will pray, and actually that they will fast. So he doesn't say, if you do these things, he actually says, when you do these things, he assumes that they're a normal part of discipleship. Now, this wouldn't have come as a surprise to Jesus' first hearers. After all, these are the cornerstones of Old Testament religion. Charitable giving was the center link of God's Old Testament nation. And there were special days set aside for giving to the needy. Daily prayer was how God's people related to him, especially morning and evening prayer. Fasting was done once a year on the Day of Atonement, but people fasted at other times for personal reasons. These practices were expected and there was a routine to them. I wonder if this idea of expectation and intention about what we might call religious practices... I wonder if this doesn't come as a a surprise to us, perhaps. As good Bible believers, we know that nothing can be added to our salvation, of course. It's by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, for God's glory alone. But I wonder if this doesn't cause us to treat expectations like this, at least in practice, but like optional extras in our Christianity. Because we know that they don't actually alter our righteousness or our status before God. It's a bit like getting the roof racks and the tow ball when you buy a car. You know, the car will still go without them, but they're nice to have. Any expectation that we must do certain things because we are Christians, especially religious acts, might sound too much like a relic of Old Testament legalism or maybe Roman Catholicism or something. Most of us are probably slightly allergic to the word religion anyway. We think that religion is everything that's wrong with Christianity. It sounds dead. So we might do these things, yes, but only if the Spirit moves us. And not because we feel we have a responsibility to, to do these things. We, somehow we feel that this is more authentic, perhaps. Perhaps. We wait for the the feeling to motivate us to do these things, rather than having a sense of responsibility before God that he's told us to do these things, therefore we should. You know, out in the world, there's a a growing sector of people who are calling themselves spiritual but not religious. But friends, there's no such thing as being Christian but not religious. So by contrast, Jesus expects the members of his kingdom will do these things. That's why he calls it practicing our righteousness. It's not a means to righteousness. We don't become righteous by doing these things. But instead, like keeping God's law, they flow from the righteousness that Jesus has already bought for us in Christ. It's righteousness that is practiced. Now, I don't expect we'll have a problem uh, in the area of praying. I think it'd be strange if we had a Christian who doesn't pray. But giving might be a different issue. Do we believe that we should give generously to those in need, not when we feel motivated to do it or when it tugs at the heartstrings, but because God expects that of His people? Of course, it might come as a complete surprise that Christians are expected to fast. Now, I've had to wrestle with this as I approach the passage this week. Ironically, I think it's something that's fallen by the wayside among modern Bible-believing Christians. And it's, I get it, it's probably a reaction against uh, the abuse of fasting in some quarters, where we've seen it either uh, with legalists fasting in order to impress God, or experientialists fasting in order to twist God's arm in some way. But we need to know that it's a thoroughly biblical practice. It's embedded in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. And Jesus says, of course, when you fast... At its simplest, it's deliberately going without food or denying uh, the satisfaction of some other appetite for a time in order to know God more in prayer and reading His Word. Maybe it's to know His grace as we repent of a particular sin or as we prayerfully seek His guidance for a decision we need to make or simply to be reminded to depend on Him first as our provider. Remember, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I think we do well to reconsider the place of fasting in our discipleship. These are all things that are sometimes called spiritual disciplines. They go along with things like reading our Bibles regularly and gathering with other believers to worship together. They're called spiritual because they've got to do with our inward life. And they're disciplines because they're actually meant to be done intentionally and habitually, even and perhaps especially when we don't feel like doing them. They are things the Lord expects of his people that he has actually prescribed in his word for us to do in response to his grace in order for us to practice our righteousness and to grow and mature as his followers. There ought to be a deliberate shape and structure to our discipleship. It's, it's exactly what Paul means when he says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 verse 7, rather train yourself for godliness. Of course, we understand the connection between training and practice, don't we? Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. That's 1 Timothy chapter 4, 7 and 8. And Jesus expects that members of his kingdom will practice their righteousness by giving generously, praying eagerly, and fasting thoughtfully. Now, once we're actually over the hurdle of doing these things, I don't think that's Jesus' point today, but I thought it was a point worth making. We face the danger then of why we are doing these things. And perhaps this gets more to the heart issues that Jesus is addressing here. Because we can do the acts. It's very easy to fast, very easy to pray, very easy to give. But if we're doing them for the wrong reason, says Jesus, we will just be hypocrites. When Jesus uses this word in verse 2 and verse 5 and verse 16, it was far more suggestive, I think, than it is today. Because a hypocrite was a name, literally, for a stage actor. So it's what they used to call actors in ancient Greece, a hypocrite. It wasn't necessarily a derogatory term like it is today. But it was someone who pretended to be someone else in order to entertain others, putting on a show to get their applause. It's very fitting for what Jesus is describing here, isn't it? It's a blunt description of what our acts of righteousness can turn into. Acts of vanity performed for the applause of others. It's scary how easily this happens. Our relationship with God takes second place to the relationship we have with our audience. People who watch us. Maybe we're trying to impress church leaderships. They'll notice us. It's putting on a show. Maybe we're trying to impress younger Christians with our knowledge and our experience because we want them to honor us and praise us in a way that's actually reserved for Jesus. It's putting on a show. Or maybe we're coming to church and I was doing youth ministry training this week with Luke and Marian and one of the points in the book said, you know how we will sit through the most terminally boring church services in order to talk to that girl or guy that we're interested in afterwards? maybe we're putting on a show to try and impress that guy or girl we're interested in. Again, it's putting on a show. We rarely put much thought and time into our own private prayers. Maybe we rarely have a daily quiet time on our own, reading our Bible, praying. But when we're with our small group, that's when we pray long and eloquent prayers full of spiritual language and theological phrases. We're putting on a show. Or, we make personal sacrifices for the sake of the gospel, but then we quietly drop hints about how hard it is to have given up so much. This is basically what the hypocrites were doing in verse sixteen, disfiguring their faces that their fasting may be seen by others oh i 'm so spiritual it's so hard i 'm so spiritual again it 's putting on a show. I once served at a church that had plaques everywhere. They were on the sound desk, on a flower stand, on a coat rack. Things that were given, apparently, for the, for the ministry of that church. But, of course, we must never forget who gave them, especially now they're dead. What happens to never forgetting Jesus? And, you know, Jesus knows us so well. He knows that even if we manage to avoid doing these things in the sight of others, that we can still be hypocrites, Because there's another audience that we might do these things for, and that audience is ourselves. We do these things quietly, yes, but actually in order to impress ourselves or congratulate ourselves. That's why Jesus actually says in verse 3, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. It's even hidden from yourself. We're even meant to hide our acts of righteousness from ourselves. Perhaps a practical way of looking at this is, you know, setting up the direct debit of your giving to just run without you having to think about it for the next 12 months. It just happens. But Jesus takes it one step further still because, my word, he knows us, doesn't he? Even if we manage to avoid practicing our righteousness in order to impress others, even if we practice our righteousness to avoid impressing ourselves... We might still practice our righteousness in order to impress God. Verse 7 and 8. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. Practicing our righteousness in order to impress anybody is self-righteousness. In Jesus' upside-down kingdom, it's not the impressive, it's not the rich, the strong, the influential, the religious, in that sense, who are blessed. Remember, it's the poor, it's the meek, it's the humble, the ones who let their light shine before others so that others may see their good works and give glory to who? To their Father who is in heaven. Even the righteousness we practice, friends, is not our own. It was bought for us at the cross by the one who fulfilled the law and the prophets for us. We have absolutely nothing to boast in. Well, thankfully, Jesus doesn't just give us a bunch of things not to do. He's gracious enough to show us a better way. This is our third point. The better way is to hide what we're tempted to show. So verse 3 and 4, When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Verse 6, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Verse 17 and 18, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. By the way, those are not special things. That's just a normal grooming routine in uh, first-century Palestine, treated like any other day. So that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. You know, I think it's even there in the words of the Lord's Prayer. It's not that we have to pray these words rigidly, although they're very good to learn, but Jesus is encouraging us even to hide our theological terms and phrases and our eloquent wording and our grandiose requests in favor of a short and simple prayer, which is all about God and his kingdom and our place in his kingdom. When you practice your righteousness... Keep it between you and your Father because He's the only one that matters in all of this. I think it must be said that Jesus isn't saying we should never pray in public. We've prayed in public here this morning a couple of times, and after all, the Lord's Prayer is clearly meant to be prayed together. It starts with the words, Our Father, not My Father, but Our Father. But our public prayers must flow from a healthy, private prayer life. So don't make a big song and dance about it. The only thing, or the only one, we're called to make a big song and dance about is Jesus. A few months ago, we got an envelope in our postbox at home, and inside was some money, a very generous gift from somebody. It was wrapped in a short handwritten note, which just had a Bible verse and a simple thank you, no name. That person didn't need us to know who they were. And we're very grateful. But who got the glory? Well, God got the glory. What else could we do but pray to God and thank him for his generosity to us and for how he's used someone else to do that? And that's how it should be, that our Father in heaven alone gets the glory. Remember the first words of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Well, finally, Jesus tells us that there is a great reward to be had in practicing our righteousness for God's glory alone. So seek the better reward. Let's be clear once again, Jesus isn't advocating some kind of works righteousness here. The reward is not earning our membership in the kingdom through our righteousness. We've already been adopted into the kingdom through Jesus' righteousness. But some sort of reward, yes, is inevitable with how we practice our righteousness. When Jesus describes the show that the hypocrites put on for the praise of others, he says, each time, truly, I say to you, they received their reward. In other words, those who practice their Christianity, putting on a show for the sake of the knowing looks and the nods and the smiles people remembering our names, the pats on the back, the praise of others, well, that's all we will get. And we'll miss out on the better reward. But what is the better reward? We've already said it's not membership in the kingdom. But what does Jesus say? Look again at verse 1, where he says that what's at stake is a reward... From your Father who is in heaven. That little phrase, your Father, comes up nine times in, this, in these 18 verses. And of course, once it's our Father in verse nine. Could that be the key to understanding the reward, perhaps? I, I certainly think it is. I think it's exactly the reason Jesus puts the Lord's Prayer in here. When we practice our righteousness in secret, friends, in a way that only the one who sees in secret can see, then we'll enjoy the reward of knowing what it truly means to have God in heaven as our Father. The reward is knowing God as our Father. He already is our Father because Jesus has made a way for us to be adopted into his family. But with God in heaven and us on here, uh, here on earth now, it can sometimes seem like God's a bit distant, which is probably why we're more tempted to care about the things that, or the way others perceive us and the way God perceives us. But practicing your righteousness in a way that only God can see, says Jesus, means you'll have the reward of knowing God as your heavenly Father, the one who deserves all our praise, the one whose kingdom we belong to, the one who provides everything we need, the one who forgives our sins, and the one who enables us to forgive others because we know we have nothing to lose with him as our Father. Hypocrisy is an ugly thing. It's ugly and it's dangerous. I was trying to think of something to illustrate this. I think hypocrisy is like a stonefish. It's ugly and dangerous. And it's one of the biggest turnoffs for our unbelieving friends and family when they think about Christianity. A recent study found that f- uh, for two in three Australians, 65 percent, hypocrisy is a negative, massive, significant influence on their perceptions of Christians and Christianity. Two in three. That's understandable. You know, we've had horrific stories of emotional and physical and sexual and even spiritual abuse having come to light where people claim to be Christians, given positions of authority and influence, and they abuse those positions for their own glory and their own satisfaction. On the other hand, many are turned off Christianity just because of people they know who claim to be Christians on the one hand, but who go off and have an affair, or who treat others poorly, or who engage in questionable business practices while still going to church every Sunday. Or people who don't keep their word, but claim to be Christians. Whether it's church abuse or the lack of integrity among Christians, people know hypocrisy is damaging to the gospel. But it's also damaging to our discipleship. It's not no longer practicing our righteousness then, it's practicing our self-righteousness. And Jesus says we miss out on the better reward. The opposite of hypocrisy, of course, is purity of heart. Now, I wonder if you remember what Jesus said back in the Beatitudes in verse 8 of chapter 5. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. They shall know what it means to have God as their Father in heaven. In Jesus' upside-down kingdom, the kingdom belongs to the poor in spirit. In Jesus' upside-down kingdom, it's not our righteousness that gets us in, but Jesus alone. In Jesus' upside-down kingdom, we don't keep the rules to get in or even to stay in. We keep the rules because we're in forever. And in Jesus' upside-down kingdom, we're called to show what we're tempted to hide, and hide what we're tempted to show, because there's a far better reward than just the praise of others. How about we pray? Father, as we come to you today, we hear Jesus' words and we confess that often we practice our righteousness for the praise of others. Lord, keep us from vanity, keep us from pride, keep us from being hypocrites. But Lord, help us to seek after that relationship with you that you've brought us in Christ. Lord, help us to know you as our Father and to obey you gladly and willingly and joyfully from the heart because you are our Father. Lord, help us to have the courage to do these things and to do them in a way that only you can see because we're seeking that better reward. And we pray this all for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this morning we're celebrating the gospel in the Lord's Supper. A great way to respond to that word this morning. It's a great way, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, to remind ourselves that we bring nothing to our salvation except our sin and that it's all of Jesus. So if you look on page five of the service outline, you'll see some things there we're going to be praying together in a moment, so keep that open with you. If you need a little communion cup, please stick up a hand and we'll get one to you. I'm going to stick up a hand as well because I don't have one. (laughs) So if someone would uh, bring one down the front here, that would be awesome. Thank you. Thanks, Julian. Let me say, we welcome anyone who has been who's trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, who's been baptized in his name and is not living in unrepentant sin, to join us as we celebrate the gospel together as a church family. If that's not you, you're welcome to be here with us, listen to the Bible read, the prayers we pray, and perhaps take the time to do business with God yourself. Listen to these welcoming words of our Savior Jesus Christ, which he says to all who turn to him. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. It's Matthew eleven twenty eight. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's John chapter 3, verse 16. Hear what the Apostle Paul says. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And hear what the Apostle John says in 1 John 2, verse 1 and 2. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. At the heart of the Christian life is an active trust in Jesus Christ alone and in his sacrificial death for our sin. So in this symbolic meal today, which of course originates in Jesus' last supper with his disciples, we express and we strengthen our trust in him, as we eat and drink with our brothers and sisters in Christ. The Lord's Supper is an outward and visible sign of the grace shown to us in the death of Jesus. As we share bread and grape juice together, we're invited to feed on Jesus in our hearts by faith with thanksgiving. We're faced again with God's love for the unworthy, and we're strengthened by faith in the one whose body was given and whose blood was shed for us. So I invite you to come then, with heartfelt repentance and genuine trust in the Lord Jesus, recognizing the significance of sharing together this way. And as I said earlier, if in good conscience it would not be right for you to participate today, please use this time to reflect on the gospel. So knowing the goodness of God and the times we fail to respond with love and obedience, let's pray and confess our sins together. We're going to use the words at the bottom of page five there and invite you to pray out loud with me let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have loved us with an everlasting love, but we have often gone our own way and rejected your will for our lives. We are sorry for our sins and turn away from them for the sake of your son who died for us. Please forgive us, cleanse us, and change us by your Holy Spirit, enable us to live for your and please you in every way for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for these gifts of your creation and pray that we who eat and drink them in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, believing our Savior's word, may be partakers of the benefits of his body and blood. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, on the night before he died, Jesus took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, "'Take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me.' After the meal, he took the cup, and again, giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, "'Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood, shed for you and for many, the blood of the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins.'" do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Well, we're going to enjoy the Lord's Supper together now, and if you peel back that cellophane on the top, it'll expose the little wafer. And invite us, as we hold these elements in our hands, to eat and drink in remembrance that Christ died for us, and feed on him in our heart's by faith and with thanksgiving. So take and eat this little wafer, remembering that Christ died for you and feed on him in your heart, thankfully, by faith. If you take the foil and peel it back carefully. Drink this, remembering that Christ's blood was shed for you, and be thankful. let's pray once more. Father of all, we give you thanks and praise that when we were still far off, you met us in your son and brought us home. Dying and living, he declared your love. He gave us grace and opened the gate of glory. May we who share Christ's body live his risen life. May we who drink this cup bring life to others. We in the spirit lights, may we give light to the world. Please keep us in this hope we have grasped so we and all your children shall be free and the whole earth live to praise your name. And to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God, our Saviour, be glory, majesty, power, and authority, through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Well, we're going to sing as we move towards the end of our service now. invite you to fight the music.